Continuing our study and looking at the life of David, going through the book of 1 Samuel, great people are generally prepared for great works by great trials. And at this particular point in David's life, he is being prepared for a great work and he's becoming a great person. And it's all happening through a great trial that God is putting him through. The plan of God for David is that he would ascend to the throne of Israel. But to prepare David for that, we see the Lord allowing David to go through this difficult trial, this difficult situation. Now, Alan Redpath, in his book, great book, The Making of a Man of God, and dealing with the life of David, it said this, God had a great purpose of blessing and a great destiny for David, but at this point he was being put through the crucible of testing to determine his fitness for what God had planned for him. You know, oftentimes when we encounter spiritual warfare and we have victory, we often wish that our next victory would signal the end of the battle for us. That the enemy would just get tired and leave us alone and just kind of go on his merry way and say, you know, Rob's too tough. You know, I'm going to, you know, go bug someone else. But it doesn't happen that way. In reality, the next time around, the enemy comes with us even harder. He comes at us with even greater force. It's like, you know, think of the Lakers. I mean, they won the NBA championship two years in a row now. And when the Lakers come rolling into some town, when they're going to play against some other NBA team, you know, does that other team just kind of roll over because Shaq and company are rolling into town? Is it like, oh man, the Lakers are here. We might as well just forfeit. No, not at all. For those other teams, it's the biggest game of the year for them. I mean, they gear up. They have more fans show up than, you know, any other time and probably any other team that they play because they want to bring the big guys down. And in the same way, the enemy, when he can't get to us through one particular method or strategy, the next time around, he comes at us even harder even stronger, so that each victory that we've won by the grace of God is really the background for the next phase of testing that's going to be at a deeper level. That is part of the making of the man or woman of God. And that's exactly what we see happening here in David's life as we come to chapter 24. Notice verse 1, it says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Now, in the barren, desolate territory surrounding the Dead Sea, there's a canyon that runs westward from the Dead Sea, and that canyon is called Engedi. It's a beautiful place. Next time we go to Israel, if you come with us, you can actually see this place, and it looks much like it did in the Bible times. It's a beautiful place with these beautiful waterfalls and lush vegetation, and it seems more like a tropical paradise than, than what you would think to be in the middle of the desert. And as you walk up this canyon, you also notice that there are numerous caves dotting, you know, the hillside there. And this would make En Gedi a great place for David and his men to hide out because in, it was in the middle of the desert 
And they could look from these caves and they could see, you know, out there on the barren plains, any enemy that would be approaching. But it also was a great place because there was a good water supply. There was wildlife there in the area. And there were these caves that they could hide out in and kind of have a great defensive position. So David and his men are there in En Gedi. They're there in the cave. But Saul and his men come there into the canyon, and they're camping out there in the canyon. We read in verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Now, here we see Saul is, you know, steeping up the attack. He's gathering together 3,000 choice men, 3,000 of his best soldiers to go after David during this time. So Saul gathers together 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. And he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. And so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. And David and his men were in the recesses of the cave. Now, the term the sheepfolds indicates that this was a large cave. Because what would happen is when the shepherds would be moving their sheep from the plains, maybe to the up in the mountain region, they would pass through this area and they would often camp out in En Gedi. And they would find one of these caves and it became known, these caves became known as the sheepfold because you could get a whole bunch of sheep inside of one. And so it's quite possible that all of David's 600 men were able to be in the recesses here of this cave. And we read here that Saul goes into this cave to attend to his needs. Now, think about this. There's probably a hundred caves there in that canyon, and Saul happens to pick the very one that David and his men are hiding in. What are the chances that Saul would pick that particular cave? This wasn't coincidence. This was a God thing. This was something that was set up by God and arranged by God to test David, to train David, and to display the godly heart of David. Notice verse 4, it says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do with him as it seems good to you. David's men see Saul come in and right away they see this as an opportunity for revenge. They see it as an opportunity to extend vengeance. They say the Lord, look, he's delivered your enemy into your hand. And apparently the Lord had spoken through one of the prophets. Maybe it was Samuel. Maybe it was the prophet Gad. That a day was going to come when the Lord would deliver David's enemy into his hand. And so David's men are thinking, this is the day and Saul is the enemy. So strike David, get him, go after him, take revenge. That's how they saw it. But David sees it as an opportunity to extend grace and mercy. Notice again in verse four, it says, and David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. 
So David's men are there. They're encouraging. Here's your chance. Go get him. Go kill him. And David instead creeps up. He cuts a little piece off of Saul's robe. And then afterwards, he feels remorseful for even just doing that because he had cut the robe off of the Lord's anointed. Now, I ask you this question. How do we view such opportunities in our lives? When we have the opportunity to lay into someone, when they have been caught red-handed with their hand in the cookie jar, how do we respond? Do you blast them? Do you let them have it or do you show grace and extend mercy? When their name comes up in a conversation in a negative sense and you know some dirt on that person, They've irritated you a time or two. How do you respond? What do you do? Do you join in the verbal assault or do you extend mercy by not saying anything at all? Or even better, do you show grace by finding something good to say about them that diffuses that verbal assault? David's men saw this as an opportunity from God to strike at Saul, to put an end to Saul. But David saw it differently. Why? I want us to note several reasons why David saw this differently and make some applications as to how it relates to our life. As we encounter the Saul's in our life who would come against us. First of all, we see that David viewed Saul differently than his men. They saw Saul as an enemy, but David saw him as the Lord's anointed. Saul was the chosen king, chosen by God to be king. Therefore, David, who had killed many Philistines and other enemies of God, wasn't going to touch Saul. He wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. And he even felt bad for simply just cutting the piece off of Saul's robe. Now, the application for us is that every believer in Jesus Christ is the Lord's anointed. Every believer in Jesus Christ is anointed of the Lord in the sense that they have been indwelt with the very Spirit of God. The very Spirit of God dwells in that individual if they are a born-again believer. They are a child of God, and they also have a robe on. They have been robed in the righteousness of Christ. A robe which he provided by shedding his perfect sinless blood on behalf of that person. And that robe of righteousness covers them. They are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we going to touch the Lord's anointed? Are we going to cut off a piece of their robe? Here's what I mean. The tongue can be like a sword. It's been said that the world's most dangerous point is the tip of the tongue. And we can, with our tongue, we can use it to cut someone to pieces. Or we can use it to cut a piece out of their robe of righteousness that they have been given by Jesus Christ. And we do that by being critical and cutting with our words. Saul most likely discarded this robe when he got home. It would become frayed. It was ruined because David had cut a piece out of it. And I wonder how many robes have we ruined with our words? How many brothers and sisters in Christ have we tainted in the eyes of others by simply cutting someone down with our words? You know, one of the problems that we face here in our country is that we are a very opinionated people. 
We live in a culture that trains us to be critical of things, to cast our opinion. We have food critics and sports critics and movie critics and radio talk shows bent on people calling in and giving their critical opinion. And when our president gives a press conference, his speech is picked apart by the media and by the opposing party. And the result is we have become people who are very opinionated and even arrogant to have an opinion about everything even our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are very, very prone to share that opinion. The Lord has been convicting me of this of late, of my criticalness, especially toward other ministries. I can be so critical because I may not agree with their philosophy. Or I may not agree with their flavor. Or I don't like the way the things they do to try to attract people to come to their church. Or I don't know, you know, I don't agree with their style or their flavor. And I've opened my mouth too many times. A tribute was once paid to a great linguist who had not only learned seven languages well, but he had also learned when to be silent in all seven of them. You know, we've been given two ears and one mouth for a reason. And a good way to save face is to keep the lower part of it shut. But a lot of times, I know me, I've opened mine too often. And I'm learning now to see the good in people. To see the good in in other ministries. To overlook what I don't agree with. And to be able to say like Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where there were these guys who were preaching the gospel. And he said that they were doing it out of selfish ambition. Their motives weren't right, but Paul said, you know what? That's between them and God. I'm just rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. And I'm trying to learn to develop that type of mentality. That does not mean that we are not required by the Lord to point out heretics and those who are fleecing the flock of God. There are those who like to use this particular phrase of David's. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed to say that you can't, you know, anybody that stands up and pretends to be a preacher, that you can't call him on heresy because you're touching the Lord's anointed. That is not true at all. And those, there are ministries who, who that's their focus is to go out and point out those who are heretics, who are fleecing the flock of God. And we are called in the scriptures to do that type of thing. But. In areas where it's just an issue of flavor or style or minor issues, let's just rejoice that the gospel is being preached. Let's just rejoice, even if it's in a very small amount that the word is being given out and that lives are being touched. So this is one application for us in this is that we need to not touch the Lord's anointed, another brother or sister in Christ, by using our tongue to cut them up or cut them down. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of discipline in that person's life or in that ministry. Not you, not me. The second thing that we need to see in this statement concerning Saul being the Lord's anointed is this. And whether David understood this or not, I don't know. But David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. And Saul, listen, was the Lord's anointed instrument to work on David and to work in David. And this is crucial for us to understand. 
Saul had long since lost his anointing as king. He was merely a usurper at this point, trying to hold on to the power and the position that no longer belonged to him. And he had become this madman. He had become a murderer. He killed 85 priests. He tried to kill his own son. He was seeking to kill David. Saul was a mess at this point. But listen, he was also the anointed instrument of the Lord, whereby the Lord would develop the character and the integrity and the spiritual depth in David. Saul was the instrument by which God would prepare David to be the next king over Israel. Again, let's make application for our own lives. Is there someone in your life that in a, in a moment of honesty, you would say, Lord, please take them out of my life. Lord, please just remove them from, from out of my life. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a, a so-called friend. Maybe even it's your spouse. Hopefully not. But And you just find yourself in a place, Lord, I wish that they would just cease to be a part of my life. Most of us have had such a person in our life at one time or another, and we will again. But over time, this person, maybe they, at one time, you know, they were friends, you were close, but then they became envious of you over time. They felt threatened by you, and finally they're, they're out for you at every step of the way. That was Saul. He had nothing for David in his heart but to destroy him. And on this day, David had the opportunity to remove the source of his discomfort. But he didn't do it because he viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed in his life. What about that boss? What about that relative? What about that so-called friend? What about that brother or sister in Christ that just irritates you? You might look at that person and say, there's no way that this person can be an instrument of God. They're a total waste. And when you see them, you want to avoid them. You want to keep your distance from them. You want to blast them with your words. You want to cut them up. You just feel inside when you see that person. They just irritate you and they anger you. Note this, that he or she is there in that position only because they are the Lord's anointed instrument to develop you in your relationship with Christ. And if you start to kill that person with your words... If you start to shred them with your criticism and your verbal accusations, then you are killing the Lord's anointed instrument in your life to make you more like him. When I was in college, I had a guy in my life like this. Every time I saw him, I just got upset. We went to the same church and he was, he just irritated me. And I just was like, I just don't like this guy. And I tried, I would try to avoid him. And the more I tried to avoid him, the more he just seemed to always be in my path and in my face. And, and it was one of these things where I finally just came to the point of realizing, okay, God's obviously in this thing. And so instead of trying to avoid this guy, I got to know him. And you know what? As I got to know him, my opinion of him changed. The reason why my opinion of him changed wasn't because he was any different, really, but because God had changed me. And that's what happens. When you begin to see that person as his instrument in your life and realize God is using this person, obviously, to do something in me to make me more like Jesus, what happens is your opinion of them is going to change because God is going to change you. 
So the second application we see here is Saul was the Lord's anointed instrument in David's life. And you have yours too right now. Recognize it. The third application is because David viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed. He was willing to wait for the Lord to deal with Saul and not take matters into his own hands. Pick up here in verse 8. So David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand and in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe, I did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue, a dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your Because David viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed, he was willing to wait for the Lord to deal with Saul and not take matters into his own hands. And we are to do what David did. To let the Lord deal with our husbands, ladies, or with your wives, fellas. To let the Lord deal with that boss or with that so-called friend or with that brother or sister in the Lord. Let the Lord deal with them. Now, the opportunity was there for David to take matters into his own hands. His men encouraged him to do it, even suggesting that this was a divine setup. David, this is God working here. And when moments like this come into our lives, we need to be all so careful. Because how easy it is for us to take initiative. And how hard it is for us to wait for God. It is so easy to just react to circumstances and to do what is right in our own eyes. But how painful are those consequences of those actions when we take matters into our own hands and move outside of God's will. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've done this. Yeah, so have I. And it might seem so right. It might seem so good. But you find out that this wasn't God at all. And the consequences are devastating. David insisted that he would not touch Saul, and he insisted that his men would not touch Saul. What would have happened if David's men, if these 600 men had watched David cut Saul to ribbons? What would have happened if they would have watched him just run David through and kill him? What kind of men would they have become? They would have become men who would learn to take matters into their own hands. They would become men who would refuse to be shaped and molded by the hand of God and the will of God. That's what would have happened. What happens to our kids as they watch us react in that type of way? 
What happens to the younger brother or sister in the Lord that is watching you as a spiritual elder in their life react and respond in that type of way? Listen, God's children need to learn to wait and watch for the Lord who has put him into a situation like that and wait for the Lord to bring it to fruition. And when a man learns the lesson, he's getting somewhere spiritually of waiting upon the Lord when he learns that lesson. The writer of Proverbs, or excuse me, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, he gives this promise to the person, to the believer who waits upon the Lord. He says there that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When a man learns the lesson of waiting upon the Lord, He's moving into an area where he's liberated through this new measure of power from the Lord. The Lord says, as you wait upon me, you're not going to wear you out. As you wait upon me, it's not that, that the situation's going to pass by. As you wait upon me, it's not that the opportunity is going to go away. But as you wait upon me, you are going to be renewed with strength. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to fill you. You're not going to be weak, but but you are going to be strengthened. In all of this, we see that David knew not only how to wait on the Lord, but he also knew how to wait for the Lord. We wait on the Lord by prayer and supplication, looking for the indication of his will. Placing things there into his hands. We wait for the Lord by patience and submission, looking for the positioning of God's hand. On the one hand, we're looking for for him to to move in his timing. In the second, we're looking for him to move in his way. How he wants to move in that situation. And David was determined that when he sat on the throne of Israel, it wouldn't be because he got Saul out of the way, but because God got Saul out of the way. He wanted God's fingerprints to be on the situation and not his own. You know, that's how we feel right now about this property situation. We don't want to do anything to try to ramrod our way, you know, ramrod this thing through and try to make it happen. But we want this to be something as we've taken the step of faith and we've just said, "Okay, God, if this is really you, if this is what you have for us, confirm it by opening up these doors and by allowing these different tests that we've been doing to come out positive. And all along the way, we're just seeking that God would confirm that his fingerprints would be all over this thing. We want to make it almost hard in one sense so that it's so obvious that it's God. That's where David was at. He didn't want to take matters into his own hands. He wanted his conscience to be clear that he knew as he assumed the throne, that it was a work that was done by God. F.B. Meyer, in his commentary on David, said this. We win most when we appear to have yielded most and gain advantages by refusing to take them wrongfully. The man who can wait for God is a man of power. And David was a man of power because he learned to wait on the Lord and to wait for the Lord. And David's loyalty to Saul also had a profound effect upon his men in this sense that throughout David's reign, his men were incredibly loyal to him. You don't read of David's men, of there ever being, aside from his son Absalom, being an insurrection amongst David's men. 
amongst this loyal group of guys because they viewed David the same way that he viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed. You will be the most liberated person in the world today if you will but recognize that that person that you've been viewing as the enemy is really the instrument of God in your life to mold you and to shape you to be more like Jesus Christ. You will be the most free if you don't touch the Lord's anointed vessel in your life. You will be the most free and of clear conscience if you are one who doesn't see to short circus the process of spiritual maturity by lashing out and coming down against those who you view as in opposition to you. Now you might be thinking, this sounds right theoretically, but practically it sounds impossible. Give me a break, Rob. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us three important insights into dealing with the Saul's in our life. Turn there. Keep your place here. Turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives some wonderful teaching concerning how we are to live. And there in chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, he gives us insight here into how to deal with the Saul's in our lives. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says here, love your enemies. Love them. Now, it was love for fallen humanity, the enemies of God, that led Jesus to go to the cross and die there in the place of every man and woman in the world and throughout history who'd ever sinned against God. It was love that led Jesus to do that. It was love that caused Jesus from the cross to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was love for fallen humanity that caused Jesus to react in that type of way. And then Jesus says to us, you love your enemies. You love the same way that I have loved, the same way that I am loving. Now, here's the thing. We might look at that and think that's impossible. But God's commandments to us are God's enablements. And God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us to enable us to do the very things that Jesus would cause us and command us to do. But how do we do that? Well, Jesus gives us insight here, practical insight into how we can be loving to those who are the Saul's or the enemy in our life. Notice three things he says, beginning in verse 44, he says, bless those that curse you, bless them. What does it mean to bless someone? It means to bestow happiness on them. Bless whom? Those that curse you. Those who wish evil and destruction upon you. Bless them. Look for ways to make them happy. Look for ways to make their life better. Look for ways to show kindness to them. Now, Jesus said this because if someone is desiring some form of evil upon you and you seek God for them to be blessed, you're actually protecting yourself from falling into the same bitterness that that person has fallen in that they're showing against you. 
So first of all, Jesus says to bless them. Secondly, he says, do good to them that hate you. If someone is hating you, then you do good to them. Why? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And as you pour goodness upon them, you will find that your heart is following the treasure that you are pouring out upon them. And you will not be able to fall into the hatred that they have fallen into. So bless them, do good to them. And thirdly, pray for them. Pray for them. Why? Something happens when we pray. Something happens to me. When I pray for people, you see, you cannot continue to be mad at someone that you are praying for. Now, you can be mad at someone that you are cursing. In fact, you will get more angry with every evil desire that you harbor against them. But you cannot be in the throne room of God and be angry. We see this over and over again in the life of David. He starts that way. He comes into the throne room. God, get him, blast him, kill him. But he never ends that way. He always comes to the end of that psalm where where his heart has changed. Pray for them. Not praying, oh Lord, kill them, blast them, get them. But pray for them, genuinely, that God would just bless their life. That God would open their eyes. That God would work in their heart. And something happens when you come into the throne room of God and you're praying for people who are treating you in that type of way. God begins to melt your heart. It's true. They say prayer changes things. And the first thing it does is it changes you. It changes us. So Jesus says to bless them. To be good to them. To pray for them. And each of these commandments of Jesus are really designed to protect you from falling into the same sin that that person who's inflicting pain upon your life has fallen into. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, these things can be a reality in our lives. And in the process, as we allow through the power of the Holy Spirit, these things to be a reality in our lives, through that process, the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus, who said of his enemies... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So David, we see here, his men, get him, David. An opportunity for revenge, for vengeance. But David, seeing Saul as the Lord's anointed in his life, sees it as an opportunity to extend grace, to extend mercy. Now, one quick thing. Turn back to 1 Samuel. Notice Saul's reaction. Verse 16. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name From my father's house. And so David swore to Saul and Saul went home and David and his men went up into the stronghold. Saul was a man 
who spent his final days battling against God. But here he encounters the love and the patience of God demonstrated through David, and it melted, at least for a moment, his hardened heart. Almost like a flash of lightning, Saul sees here his stupidity and his folly. And that's why the practice of love is so important. That is why it is so essential. Is because love has the ability to break down the most powerful of barriers. Love has the way of stripping people of their defenses that allows them to be open to the message of the gospel. And it's the love that melts a person's heart to the point of being open to receiving Christ that oftentimes that love starts when they see it in us. When they see it in you, when they see it in me and how we deal with them and how we react to these type of situations. But notice what a miserable picture Saul has become. He experiences the emotion of sorrow. There's confession, there's remorse, there's tears. He sees that he is wrong, but he doesn't change. There's no repentance. What good are the tears? What good is the confession if he doesn't act upon that remorse? Emotions are great if it awakens a person's heart to their sinful condition and results in them turning from their sin. How many times have we seen people streaming down the aisle, tears in their eyes, tears rolling down their face as they come to the altar at a church service or at a crusade or at an outreach? And there's tears and there's an acknowledgement of their sin, but those tears don't lead to obedience. They don't lead to real repentance. Listen, it is not coming forward and simply acknowledging Christ or acknowledging remorse or acknowledging conviction that saves a person. It's surrendering the heart to Christ. And the evidence of that surrender is seen by the continued walking with the Lord after that occasion. But so many are like Saul. There's remorse, there's conviction. Paul talked about a godly sorrow that works repentance, meaning it's a sorrow that works so strong in the life it produces a change. Too often that's not the case. Saul continues to be a pathetic man. A horrible picture, a miserable picture. Because as God tries over and over and over again to get his attention, he has sorrow concerning his sin, but he doesn't change. Maybe you're here this morning and God's been just kind of working on your heart, even through this message. And you're experiencing right now in your heart conviction through the Holy Spirit about maybe a person that you've been blasting or a situation that that you've totally been handling the wrong way. 
Can I encourage you? Don't let it just be conviction. Don't let it just be remorse. Don't let it just be a wake up that, oh man, I'm wrong. And then you go home, put on the football game and, you know, eat some pizza and go, okay, you know, tomorrow or, you know, three hours from now, it's, it's out of your mind. Don't be a Saul. Deal with it. And may all of us be those who see those people that God has placed in our lives as those instruments to mold and shape us as the Lord's anointed and allowing God to use those people to work in us, to make us more like Jesus, to love them, to bless them, to pray for them. May the Lord so work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that like with Saul, you are so patient with us. And Lord, we can't help but see in David a picture of your son, who when you had the opportunity to strike out at us, instead you allowed yourself to be smitten for us. And you shed your perfect sinless blood to robe us in a robe of righteousness. Lord, help us not to be those in our brothers' and sisters' lives who seek to taint those robes through our words, our criticalness, through the cutting of the tongue. But Lord, may we be those who seek to build up and encourage each other in the ways of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your commitment to work in us. May we be soft, moldable vessels in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.